All right, it's really a joy to be with you today. I love uh, Easter and uh, thankful for those who worked hard at putting these beautiful decorations out. And of course, uh, the reason we have decorations is because we're excited about what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. And uh, we're looking forward to looking together at his word and seeing the difference Christ's resurrection makes in our lives. So if you'll uh, take your Bible, I can't wait to see what God's going to teach us. Can't wait to learn from this passage. If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 35 through 49 and talk about the resurrection. I see a few uh, kids here today. And you know one of the things that we've been doing to help uh, the kids listen is just giving them a word. And the word for today, surprise, surprise, is the word resurrection. So if you can listen for that word and mark it down, you can see how many times I say it and come up to Marta, my wife Marta, afterwards and she'll have a treat for you. But more important than just hearing the word resurrection is understanding what that word means. And so even parents, as you go home today, why don't you ask your children, what do you think the resurrection means? And what difference does the resurrection make? Because that's really what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection. And I know that it's Easter, and so you probably expect me to talk about that. And you may even be expecting me to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because this is kind of the big resurrection chapter in the scripture. There are a lot of great passages on the resurrection, obviously, but this chapter has it all. It's this big, old, glorious defense of the resurrection, and not of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection so much, actually. That was not under debate. It was assumed, but our res resurrection, really, that's the point here. Jesus rose from the dead, so we will too, which of course is something that we talk about at Easter, at church at least, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, and hopefully not just at Easter, that's something that we should be talking about like all the time because it is good news. And I, I think it is especially important for us to be talking about after a year like this one because it's been a a hard year, honestly, and we've been confronted with the reality of death probably more than most years, uh, or if not more, at least you can say that it's been harder for us to ignore, because in our culture, that's generally how we like to deal with death, like if we just don't think about it, it will somehow go away, but obviously it won't go away, and it's scary, death. I noticed that some people say, I'm not scared of death, I'm more scared of the process of dying, but I don't know. I, I think death is actually kind of scary in and of itself. It's scary. You go to a, a funeral and watch as they lower the body down into the grave. That's scary, and yet that's reality. Aren't you glad you came to church on Easter Sunday? Welcome. <laughs> but it's reality. I have this uh, funny habit of watching old television shows with my family. And whenever we watch an old television show, I Google who, who is still alive in the cast. And so uh, lately we've been watching I Love Lucy. And, uh, you know, I think they're all gone except for little Ricky. Um, death happens. And not just to other people either. It was a few years ago, we were sitting in the doctor's office in South Africa, having found out, I just found out that Marta had cancer like a, a week before. And I remember looking at the doctor and thinking at first, this can't, this can't be happening. And then later, of course, it struck me, why can't it be happening? This happens. Death, not just to other people, but to you. There's a day coming when your heart is going to stop beating. And someone is going to come into the room or they're going to find you on the side of the road or wherever. And you're not going to be breathing. And people are going to be crying and they're going to maybe not believe it at first. And they're going to shake you to wake you, but you won't be there. And eventually they'll come to grips with it and there will be a funeral. And they'll put your body into the coffin and everyone will show up and there will be a service. 
and you won't know anything about it because you're gone. But your body's there. And they'll take the coffin where they put your body and they'll lower it into the ground and they'll throw dirt on you. And then that's it. It will be all done. That's reality. And that reality by itself is frightening. And we've seen this year that for most of the world, that fear is controlling. And yet as Christians, our attitude is different. We, we don't like death. We're not inhuman. In fact, the truth is we probably hate death worse than others because we know it's the consequence of man's rebellion. We see the death in death. And we don't pretend like we don't have a natural fear of death because we realize it's outside the creation pattern. It's an invader almost, you can say. And yet if we're thinking straight, our attitude toward death is different because of what we're celebrating today, the resurrection. Because we believe in, as Christians, we believe in the physical resurrection of dead people. In other words, we believe we die, but we don't stay dead. And look, by resurrection, I'm not just talking about a bunch of souls floating around forever. That's not unusual for people to think that way. But I'm actually talking about dead people coming to life in the future with bodies. That's what we believe in when we talk about the resurrection. We believe dead people won't stay dead And, you know, this is actually not one of those things that's debatable for us as Christians either. The resurrection is an essential element of the gospel. And so there are some things in the Bible that you can have debates about. Like, you think this, and you're a Christian, and I think this, and I'm a Christian. That's possible for some things, but there are other issues that are not debatable. If you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. And the resurrection of the dead is one of them. It's kind of like Christianity 101. You can't go on to the next class until you get this, resurrection. As John Stott once said, Christianity in its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. And this is clearly not a new idea for us as Christians either. I was reading somewhere where someone said, historically, everyone would have understood that you cannot be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. And that's why you see it in the ancient creeds, statements about what Christians believed. Like, listen to this one, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's probably one of the oldest creeds. The Nicene Creed as well. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Belgic Confession. We believe all the dead shall be raised out of the earth and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. In other words, we don't don't just believe in eternal life as Christians. We believe in a specific kind of eternal life. A physical one. And the reason that creed said things like that is because of what the scripture says over and over, Old Testament and New. The Old Testament, the resurrection is there. For example, Abraham in the book of Genesis is called by God to sacrifice his son, which seemed confusing and impossible actually, and yet he's willing to do it. Why? Hebrews tells us it's because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And then Job, which describes events maybe even a little earlier than Abraham. In chapter 19, he expresses his longing. I know that my Redeemer lives. And then that in the end, he will stand on the earth, that after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me, which assumes a physical resurrection, obviously. After my skin has been destroyed, in my flesh, I will see God. And there are 
other passages in the Old Testament that are maybe a little more complicated, but sure seem to be speaking of a physical resurrection like Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26. And what is there in the Old Testament becomes even more clear in the new. So Jesus in John chapter five, verse 25 says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. I'm always a little concerned on Easter and this is kind of why I'm going after this. I'm always a little concerned on Easter that things get so normal for us that we don't even see what like is there. That is shocking. The dead, dead people are going to hear Jesus's voice, like physically dead people and live. And verse 28, in case you're confused about what Jesus means, he says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Then he promises in John chapter six, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And it's not just the Old Testament and Jesus, it's Paul, it's Peter, it's everywhere. The future resurrection of the body is something that is so basic to the Christian that you could say it's fundamental, it's essential. If you take it out, you're not a Christian anymore. And there's probably no place in the Bible that stresses how important the resurrection of the body is to the whole Christian faith than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the place where Paul takes this doctrine and bold prints it and like draws a line in the sand. You absolutely must believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he has to do that because there were people in the church there in Corinth who are wondering whether this really was possible. Like, could there actually be a physical bodily resurrection? And Paul's writing the Corinthians and he's like, you cannot mess this up. You, you cannot miss this. And so he begins the chapter by stressing its importance. He says it's of first importance, the resurrection. And there he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Verse one, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's how he starts. I want to remind you what I preached and what you accepted as true when you first believed, the truths in which you stand and what will save you in the end by which you're being saved if you keep believing it. And Paul tells us what was at the core of that message, verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, which reminds us again, this resurrection tradition is very, very early. It's like, so early, the, the proclamation of the resurrection, Paul received this and he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to the 12. And the reason Paul brings up the resurrection of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 15 as so fundamental is because the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection as believers is connected. He didn't have to argue for the resurrection of Jesus because people knew that happened. And yet they were wondering whether or not we would be resurrected. And so Paul makes it clear here that if Jesus rose, we will rise. And if we don't rise, Jesus didn't. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead. And that's a big deal to Paul because if there's no resurrection of the dead, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the gospel is a lie. And if the gospel is a lie, everything we believe is pointless. And if everything we believe is pointless, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. Verses 14 through 19. I mean, this is not a side issue. In other words, the, the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is key to our salvation. And our resurrection as believers is key to living the Christian life out. This is something that matters doctrinally and this is something that matters practically. Even just take Paul himself as an example because later in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is like, look at me. Please help me understand my life, verse 30. 
Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does that profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, please explain me. If bodies don't come back to life, you can't explain me. There's absolutely no point to the life I'm living apart from the resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, let's just go out there and live for as much instant pleasure as possible because who knows when we're going to die and it's all over. It's impossible really to overemphasize the resurrection of the dead. This is fundamental. This is basic. This is one of the key distinctives of the Christian faith and yet it is kind of surprising, actually. I, I, I know we're kind of used to it by now, and so we get dressed up in our nice outfits, and we put the balloons out, and we come to church, and we talk about it every year at Easter, and we can even sing songs about it while yawning, you know. It's always amazing to me that we can talk, talk about the resurrection of the dead as if it were something just so normal, because when you slow down and think about it, it is awesome. <laughs> Like, we believe this. Do we believe this? Dead people coming back to life. You hear, you're like, this is on. You hear me, right? It's funny, Jesus says, don't marvel. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And you are like, don't marvel? <laughs> People in their tombs coming forth, that sounds like something you would marvel at. It's awesome. And it's, it's not just like this interesting concept or theory either. It's huge. And it leads to some questions, really. Like, for one, how does it work? That's a, a big question. How does it work? Which is a question people have always been asking. It's not like the resurrection of the dead was ever easy to understand. Like somehow people back in Paul's day had an easier time believing in the resurrection of the dead. Like Paul sitting at coffee talking to some Roman senator about the resurrection and he's like the Roman senator as he's sipping his coffee, oh, the resurrection of the dead, of course, of course. No, this was like always shocking and it ended up getting attacked and mocked even. And not just from out and out non-Christians either, but from people who said they believed in God and who could understand maybe the spirit going on after a person died. That has never really been controversial, the idea of the spirit going on after a person died, but not a physical bodily resurrection. That was the part that has always been hard, which is part of why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, which is the passage I want us to look at today, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, which begins with a question, but someone will ask, Paul says in verse 35, and he's anticipating how someone might respond to what he's talking about. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body will they come? And I I didn't really read that in the right way because this is a question that they're asking almost with a sneer. The emphasis is on how, like, how is this possible? Come on, Paul. Seriously, we can't even imagine such a thing. Someone once paraphrased, this verse. Can we conceive of such a thing? We cannot be expected to believe what is impossible and inconceivable. For, for one thing, what kind of bodies are dead people going to come out of the ground with? It's like, Paul, you know how death works, right? And I don't know if you've ever asked questions like that, but I think if you haven't, you probably should. Not Mocking, of course, but stand in front of a grave sometime. 
Death is coming for you. It is hunting you down. It is relentless. You can keep running, but every time you look back, death is there. It doesn't grow tired. And so you need to think, if there is a resurrection, how is that going to happen? I mean, how can you believe that? And what's it going to be like? Those are important kinds of questions. We need to know, this is why I believe this, and this is what I believe. And I want to walk you through Paul's answer, because first of all, he defends the resurrection in verses 36 through 38. This is how we know it's going to happen. And then he describes the resurrection body in verses 39 and following. This is what it's going to be like. One, he defends the resurrection, and two, he describes the resurrection, and he begins by putting doubters of the resurrection in their place. Verse 36, you fool, you foolish person. And he begins to defend the resurrection like that, saying basically, let me show you how silly this question you're asking really is, because Paul's not intimidated by doubters. You know, we're kind of trained to always think of doubters as so intellectual and all of their doubts as being so sophisticated. But one reason Paul is not intimidated by these people asking these questions is because most of the time when people are attacking scriptural realities, it's not so much an intellectual problem as it is a heart problem. And so their attacks are often less sophisticated than you think they would be. And to demonstrate that, Paul uses a simple illustration from nature. He says, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And he's talking about a seed, obviously. And this isn't so much like this big, long, technical, scientific argument as it is a simple analogy from the way we observe things to work in the world already. So these people are acting like the resurrection is this totally new category and it's like this completely out of the box scenario. And Paul's like, actually, you just need to look around a little at nature and think a little because we have analogies. God in this physical world has sort of embedded so many analogies to biblical truths. And one of those is this seed. How is it going to become a tree? It has to go into the ground, right? And in a sense, stop living as a seed. So obviously, you hold the seed in your hand, and it's not going to become a tree, fortunately. It's got to go into the ground and die, you could say. You've got to bury it. And really, it's kind of amazing if you step back and imagine not knowing how a seed worked. So maybe you are Adam and Eve or Eve, Adam or Eve, way back at the beginning of the world, and you're standing with one of the angels, and uh, I'm making this up, but he has this little itty-bitty seed in his hand, like his little angel, or big angel hand, and he says, uh, let me uh, tell you something, Adam, uh, just wait, this little itty-bitty seed is going to grow into a giant tree, and if you're Adam or Eve, you're going to say, how? And the angel says, here's what you need to do. You need to bury it in the ground. And if you didn't know about seeds, you would think the angel was crazy. There's no way that can become a tree. How does that work? Like if someone asked you, if you didn't know and you never saw it happen before, and someone asked you, how do you get a tree? How would you think it worked? If you were me, at least, you would probably think, well, you start with a tree. Put the tree into the ground and a tree comes out. But Paul says no, verse 37. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. So here, you're mocking the idea of a resurrection, and you're like, what kind of body are we going to have, Paul? And Paul says, you know just from nature, when you plant a tree, you don't go out and plant the full-grown tree. You don't sow the body which is to be. You sow the seed. And then what happens? How does it go from a tree, seed to a tree? And I'm, again, not asking you to describe the whole scientific process, because I know probably some of you actually could. I got a little bored in botany class myself, but maybe you could describe the whole scientific process, but that's not really the question. The question is, what is behind the scientific process? How did that transformation take place? Verse 38, it's God. But God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And this is important. It's God who does this. 
And it's important because sometimes we think if we can explain something scientifically, that means we understand it. And so we get out a little microscope and we explain how a seed becomes a tree and we think we understand it, but being able to explain a process and actually understanding that process are two different things. The question is not how does it become a tree, but why? Why does a seed become a tree? And the answer is God. God is behind the whole process. As you put that seed into the ground, God's designed this process of taking that buried seed and somehow giving it life and just the right body as well, according to whatever kind of seed it is. And Paul's point is that if God can transform that seed, why is it so hard for you to imagine that he can take a dead body and do the same thing? And so it's kind of like if you're, if you're wondering, is the resurrection possible? I am so scientific. I don't know if it's possible. It's like Paul says, look around. The whole world is impossible. You're like, this sounds like it's too much. The whole world is too much. You ask, what are the chances? I like how one man puts it. You are on a ball spinning in the middle of space right now. What are the chances of that? What are the chances of a huge sphere ending up spinning around a much huger burning sphere set at exactly the right distance away such that temperatures are cool enough that we don't all shrivel up like wrist hairs close to a fire and warm enough that we don't all end up like mammoths surprised by fast growing glaciers. You know, we act like these things are so normal. They are not normal. If your eyes are open, you look around, how does all of this happen? The only answer is God. And this is one of the fun things about studying nature, actually, because you know in nature, just because something seems impossible or unlikely or strange, that doesn't stop God. That, that's never stopped God from doing exactly what he wants. The same God who takes seeds and makes them trees will take your body and raise it, transforming it into something better. And you know, that's just nature, but it's Easter. So I have to add this to defend the resurrection. He's already done it. And that's kind of like Paul's whole point. If you're wondering about the resurrection, look up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Because for Paul, Christ's resurrection and your resurrection are connected like a head and a body. So it's kind of like, say you're at a funeral and you're looking at someone who's dead. The person is dead. And then somehow the eyes open and, and the head miraculously comes back to life and they look at you and they say, hello. If the head is alive, are you going to wonder about the body? Or, or take it a step Further, and this is even harder to imagine, I know, but imagine it's your friend who did it. You're there, and he says, I'm gonna raise this guy from the dead. And you're like, You are a wacko. We're at a funeral. Please don't be weird. <laughs> but then you're standing there, and he touches the guy's head, and the head comes back to life. Are you gonna look at your friend and say, Well, Sure, that was easy. You can raise the head to life, but the body's too difficult. There is no way you can do that. No, obviously not. And so one reason we make such a big deal every year about God raising Jesus from the dead is because he's our head. We see the head coming out of the ground. We know the rest of the body is coming out as well. If he rose, we will too. But how exactly? Push yourself a, a step further because that's the second question. First, Paul defends the resurrection in verses 36 through 38 with just this simple analogy from nature. And then he describes the resurrection body beginning in verse 39 and on down. What is the resurrection body going to be like? And in verse 39, he starts by giving you a way of thinking about it. He says, for not all flesh is the same, which is kind of obvious. Not every body is the same. But there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Fortunately, 
<laughs> men, animals, fish, birds, we all have different kinds of bodies. If we watch one of those commercials on TV where they mix up the bodies, the human body and an animal body, that is, that's strange. We have different bodies and we're glad. And that's also true for things up in the sky and things on earth as well. Verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. And so if you look at the universe, God gives different bodies to different things and he gives each the kind of body they need to do what they're supposed to. Verse 41, Paul explains, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. And there's a reason behind all that. It's not random. He doesn't sometimes give the stars a body of a dog, for example, that would have been the wrong body. And he doesn't give dogs the body of a star either because that would keep it from doing what it needs to do. And verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And so it is what? So it is, just as, in other words, just as God has been designing bodies fitted for their purposes all these years, he is going to design a new kind of body for people who died. And it's going to be like the body we have now, but it's going to be different in some significant ways. And this is important. There's going to be continuity with these bodies, our bodies, and discontinuity. We will be the same, but we will also be very different. In other words, it's not just like resuscitated. It's not even just like what happened to Lazarus either, where, you know, he's dead or he's pronounced dead, but then he's alive. Yeah, kind of like that, but, but no, it's, it's more like a seed and a tree. And because this is a little mysterious, Paul starts describing more specifically some of the differences in the verses that follow. And this should be thrilling for us as believers because this is like literally the future you. What is sown, he says, if you look down in verse 42, and he's just coming back to the seed illustration, you sow a seed and it comes up the same but different, and you sow a believer's body into the ground and it comes up the same but different. Again, you say how. Paul describes four differences. One, the resurrection body, and when I say it like that, it just sounds a little abstract. Your resurrection body is going to be imperishable. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Right now, we have a body that can die, that's perishable. And imperishable, obviously, is the opposite. In other words, the future, Resurrection body is a body that can't die. And this is one of the most important differences. So Paul comes back to it in verses 52 and following. If you look down, he says, we shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And it's hard for me to even just like read that without jumping for joy because this is so sweet. Death is going to be defeated. And that is so sweet because the fact for most of us is that most likely we're going to die. We're not all going to die because at some point Jesus is going to come back, but most of us probably are. Your body is probably going to go into the ground, and when Jesus returns, it's going to come up out of the ground. And I know that's a little bit of a simple way of putting it because you're going to decay, and who knows where all of you is going to go, but somehow... The one who created the world, who knows every part of you, is going to put you back together again in a way where it's still going to be you, but different. And one of the differences is that God is going to make your new body permanent, indestructible, and it is going to be glorious. That's the second difference. Paul continues, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. Or you could even say shame. And 
That sounds hard, but it's true. If you think about how far down sin has brought us compared to the potential we had as humans when God first created us. I sometimes wonder how the angels look at us now. (laughs) Those angels who saw Adam and Eve in their pre-fall condition, who see us all these years later. It's like when you know someone at one point and then they become maybe a beggar later. Wow, I don't know what the angels feel, but you can imagine them feeling shame or, or sorrow, pity maybe. These bodies are sown in dishonor, and especially when they die. If you've seen a, a dead body, it's, it's sad, almost, almost pitiful. You might have known that person as so strong, but there they are now. When you see a resurrected body, though, that's not how it is at all because these bodies that are sown in dishonor are raised in glory, Paul says. And that's weighty, significant, heavy in the positive way, substantial. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8.18. This is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture because Paul writes, for I consider, I think that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's like big for Paul to say because he suffered, you know, he really suffered. And he's looking at how much he suffered and he's saying, please, please don't even bring that up. You cannot compare what I've gone through with what is coming. For, and this is, this is really, he says, for the creation waits. Listen, he's saying, the mountains wait, the, the oceans wait, the stars wait. They're, they're anticipating. Almost like, you know, a, you go to a play and you're waiting for the curtain to be drawn back. The stars, the mountains, the, the, the oceans, they're waiting, they're anticipating what? For the creation waits, and he doesn't just say waits, he says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And that's us. The creation, it's as if the creation is sitting on the edge of its chair waiting to see you. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like we go up to a mountain now, and this is one of the reasons why I love to hike. We go up on a mountain and we're in awe at nature. And... and you probably had this experience where you're like, wow. And you're with, you're with the people around you and you're like, please don't say anything right now. We can't say anything right now unless it's praise to God. Because it's just glorious. There's like a glory there. And it's sometimes so big as you're looking at nature that you can't even speak. It's like there's a heaviness in your chest. And yet there's a day coming where that mountain is going to look at you and say, because of what God has made you, your resurrected body is going to be glorious. It is imperishable. It is glorious. It's holy, it's pure, it's perfect. This is a third difference. It is sown in weakness, Paul says. It is raised in power. And the word weakness is a little more difficult because it could mean a couple things, right? Like, what could weakness mean? One, there's physical weakness. And that's definitely true if you compare us to nature. Comparatively speaking, your body's probably not even as strong as a cockroach. Or my body, too, all of us, actually. But there's a a big change coming. You are going to be strong physically. I remember... uh, I remember in South Africa going to the gym and there was an older man that I knew who would go to the gym for like four or five hours a day. And I always, and he was working out hard, but each time I saw him, he was still getting older. And I kept thinking in my head, man, uh, it's coming, it's coming. You're, you, you know, you're working hard now and that's great, but that re- you're going to be strong. <laughs> no matter what you do now, you're still going to get weaker. But the day's coming when you're going to have an incredible body that is, that is strong, powerful. Not just physically, but spiritually. And I think this is probably more what Paul's getting at here. It may be that weakness means spiritual weakness. The the flesh is weak, Paul says, and he means spiritually weak. In other words, we fall so easily right now. There's so much that we want to do as Christians that we can't do. I sometimes even think that sitting and listening to sermons on the resurrection. I'm like, the resurrection of the dead, I should be going crazy right now in my heart. This is incredible. 
And yet sometimes it's so hard. We, we want our hearts to be at a, a place they're not, and we're not even as excited as we should be as we hear these truths. There, there's just so much that we want to do as Christians that we can't do right now, but it's not going to be that way with our resurrected bodies. They're going to be indestructible, honorable, glorious, and listen, they're going to be untemptable as well. It's only perfect people in God's presence forever. We are going to die, but you're coming back, and you're coming back better. Not able to sin. In other words, not perishable, not dishonorable, not weak, spiritual. Fourth, spiritual, verse 44. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, which is a little confusing at first because you think, wait, does Paul mean our body now is physical, but the body we receive in the future isn't? Like, oh, we're not going to have physical bodies. They're going to be spiritual bodies. But if that's what you're thinking, slow down, because that doesn't really make sense, because there's no such thing as a body that is a spirit. A body is a body. <laughs> the word spiritual is describing the body here. So we have a physical body now, but we're gonna have a spiritual body, bold print, then. What's that mean? He's not talking about the composition of your body, but the orientation. The word for spiritual here is not so much a word that describes the substance out of which something is made, but describes the force that is animating the thing in question. So if you wanna see what Paul means, you could go back to 1 Corinthians chapter two verses 14 and 15, because he makes a contrast in this same book there. And what's the contrast? He says, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to say, but he who is spiritual judges or discerns all things. And you see the contrast, right? A natural man doesn't accept. A spiritual man appraises. And so is Paul talking there about one person who has a body and the other who doesn't? Is he saying, if you have a body, sorry, you can't accept the things of the Spirit of God. But if you're like floating around like a spirit, you can. No. Instead, he's talking about a person who doesn't have the Spirit of God and another person who does. So if you fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, then he's talking to Christians there, and you can look for the same contrast. He says, but I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to people of flesh. And so, obviously, Paul's not saying, you know, I really wanted to speak to you like people who didn't have bodies, but I, I, I couldn't do that. That wouldn't make sense, right? He's saying, I could not speak to you as people whose lives were controlled by the Spirit. That's what it means to be spiritual. They were Christians, but at that point, they weren't being controlled by the Spirit, which helps us, I think, if we come back to chapter 15, when Paul says the body that is sown is natural or physical, he's talking about the orientation, and the body that is raised is spiritual. The contrast is not between one body that has flesh and the other that doesn't, it's not like Paul is saying, you used to drive a car, but just wait, you're going to drive a boat, something completely different. No, it's, it's more like you used to drive a gas-powered vehicle, but you're going to drive an electric one. It's still a car, but it's powered by something different. In other words, it's a body, it's a real body, but it's one that exists in a supernatural way that is completely driven by the Spirit of God and what the Spirit wants, and that is adapted to live in the presence of God, which is helpful, but maybe a little vague at first. So to help us, Paul gets a little more specific in verses 45 and following. And it's like he says, well, let me give you another illustration. Think, uh, if you're not understanding, think Adam and Jesus. And again, he's describing what spiritual bodies are going to be like exactly. And so he goes back to Adam and Jesus. In God's mind, it's almost like he only sees two, two people. <laughs> and so this is going to be like a comparison between the two people God sees, Adam and Jesus. And in verse 45, Paul quotes Genesis 2. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So you might think of Adam and Jesus as both being heads of particular races, almost, forefathers. If we look back at the beginning of the world, there's Adam, and then comes Jesus, the second man. And why does he call Jesus the second man? Why would, Adam, why would 
Paul ever talk about Jesus like that. It's because Jesus came to do something like Adam did, only better. The last Adam, that is Jesus, Paul says, became a life-giving spirit. In other words, God created Adam and he gave Adam life, but God sent Jesus into this world in order to give life. And the life is the spiritual body that he's talking about. So obviously we look at these bodies now that we have and they come from Adam. And so they're like his body, we are his descendants. But the next body we get is gonna be a body like Jesus's. That's what Paul's saying. And we don't get that when we're born because that's not the order God had in mind. Paul says in verse 46, but it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural. And then the spiritual, and again, there's a spiritual body and a natural one. And so, again, what's the difference between the bodies? Paul's saying, think about the difference between Jesus's resurrected body and Adam's created one. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And that's where Jesus came from, heaven. And so as was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. And what exactly is this body gonna be like? Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In the same way we have bodies like Adam now, we will have bodies like Jesus then. And I mean, I can't explain all of that, but it's awesome. Somehow your body is going to be like Jesus's resurrected body. That is the pattern. And you know, does that mean it's gonna look like Jesus's body exactly? Like we're all clones running around physically? No, because we don't all just look like Adam right now, but it's gonna be the same nature as Jesus's body, the same kind of body. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians 3. You know this verse, but watch how exactly Jesus is gonna transform our bodies. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pause and wait for this who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And did you catch those words? To be like, those are awesome words. What's gonna happen when Jesus comes back is that Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe who created the world with a word and defeated death is going to use that creative and resurrection power and make our bodies like his glorious body. He's gonna redesign them so that they're able to live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And so that they're able to live in the very presence of God. And you have to think about that because that's part of why we have to have bodies that are different. Because what would happen to your body right now, the, the body you have, if you were in the special presence of God? What happened to that guy when he touched the ark? Read the book of Leviticus. There had to be all kinds of, you know what Leviticus is about, basically? Leviticus is about how to live with the holy God and not die. It's like when God moves in, his special presence dwells among you. It is dangerous like physically dangerous because he is so glorious and awesome. And his glory is not just like an idea, it is real. That's why when that guy touched the ark, he died. You fall off a roof, you die. God is glorious. And so you need a new body that is going to be able to dwell in the presence of God. And that's what Jesus is going to give you. It's gonna be you, an imperishable you, a glorious you, a perfect you, a you designed for living with God forever, but you, still the real you, a recognizable you, the, the same you. And we know that, we get glimpses that that's the way it is for one thing, because Jesus calls people in heaven by name, the same name they had on earth, like Lazarus. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man could recognize Lazarus, he had the same identity he had on earth. And so you, the things that make you, you, will still make you, you in heaven only better. You're gonna be a unique you. We won't all be alike. We won't all look alike 
in heaven. When Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were Moses and Elijah. They like looked different and the disciples could tell them apart. And I know that's only a glimpse, but it's a glimpse at least of the future. It gives us a, maybe a pattern that will continue. And in the book of Revelation, when John was looking at the multitude in heaven, he could tell the differences between tribe and nation. We're, we're still gonna be different races. I used to tell the church in Africa, you're so glad about that. We're going to still be different races. This is good. And there's going to be male and female in heaven as well. When Jesus appeared to the disciples, he was still a man. And you remember, he's an example of what the resurrected body is like. And so we can assume what's true of him will be true of the rest of us as well. And we could go on because the Bible does. It's going to be a physical you. The Bible talks about eating and drinking. It talks about feasts. And you know, those who have looked carefully at what the Bible teaches even say, it seems like our minds will still need to learn and grow and discover in eternity. But the thing that encourages me is that while all this is mind-blowing and we could kind of go on and on about like how exactly is it going to be like, it's just awesome and thrilling. And yet what encourages me is that it, it, it's, it's actually all just like so basic. <laughs> it's just like, it's just like basic Christianity at its core, the resurrection of the dead. This is not like really debatable stuff for us as Christians. You don't have a Christianity without this kind of resurrection, the resurrection first of Jesus, of course, but not just of Jesus, but also of you. The Bible is clear. If Jesus rose from the dead, you will too. In fact, Paul is just absolutely straight if you don't rise from the dead, Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so this is, this, this is not just like a philosophy or a way of life that we come week after week to talk about. You know, it's, it's Easter, that thing we do. This is not just sort of like a little way to live a, a, a nice life. This is what we're talking about. This is good news about what God has done through Jesus. And I'm, I'm asking, first of all, do you believe it? Because I've been talking this whole time assuming that you're a Christian, but that's like a big assumption to make, right? I, I know that you've been coming to church and you, you know Easter, you know about the resurrection. That's not my question. My question is, do you know Christ? And that's an important question. There's really no more important question in your life because death is coming. We've seen that this year. We can wear masks and, you know, quarantine and do our best, but death is coming and no, no vaccine is going to stop that. And, and, and that's real. We can laugh, we can try to ignore it. That's real. This, this plane is crashing at, at some point. And that's scary. And yet you don't have to be controlled by fear because Jesus defeated death. That is an historical event. And for those of you who are Christians, that's good news. But if you're not a Christian, it is not good news for you right now at all. And this is the part that's hard, but you need to hear it. You have broken God's law, and you deserve God's punishment. And what is God's punishment? Well, you get a, a little bit of a glimpse, like all this death that we see, and yet this death is just a picture of the death, the judgment that is coming. Sin is serious, and all this death we see proves it. There is not just physical momentary death there is eternal death there is a judgment of God upon sinners that is coming and if you won't look to the savior God's provided to save you if you have to be your own savior if you keep shaking your fist at God you won't be able to do anything about the death that's coming to you and you won't be able to do anything about the sin either because the day is coming no matter how hard you try to pretend like it's not, when you'll die, just like the rest of us. And that's not even the scary part. That's not even the scary part. 
Because what's really scary is that you will be raised again as well. And one day you will receive some kind of resurrected body, but it's not going to be the exact same kind of body Paul's talking about here. If you're not a Christian, you're going to receive a body that cannot die as well, but you are going to wish it could. Because you're going to receive a body that is suited for an eternity in hell, a body that can live forever being punished for the sins you committed against an infinitely holy God, which is honestly overwhelming to think about. But look, here's what I want to tell you. You don't have to endure that punishment because God is so kind. He's not just one character trait. So he's holy and he hates sin and we're glad about that. He always does what is right. And so he has to judge your sin, but he's kind as well. And so he's provided a way for you to be rescued by sending his son, Jesus, which means if you're not a Christian, this is a moment for you. You can be forgiven. You can have peace with God. You can be sure that you're going to live forever in his presence. And you know what you need if that's going to happen? What you need, what you desperately need is nothing. What you need is to humble yourself. What you need is to come to God empty, recognizing that you have nothing, recognizing that you can't defeat death and you certainly can't atone for your sin, recognizing that you are a sinner, seeing your sin for what it is. Stop playing games. Stop pretending like you're better than you are, but look to Jesus, this Savior, this great Savior that God has provided who is able to save you not only from the the death that is coming, but from the penalty of sin to give you forgiveness because he's died for your sin and who's able to save you from the curse of sin, who's able to bring you up out of the ground after you die because he rose from the grave and he's coming again and he can transform your body to be a body like his that doesn't die, that isn't shameful, that doesn't sin. And that is able to live in the presence of God forever. A body that is you, but different, better. And again, that's a a big part of what we're celebrating this Easter. This isn't just like a, a day of the year, a ritual. We look back and we remember this happened. Jesus rose from the dead. We really have good reason to believe it. And the Spirit has opened our eyes and shown us that Christ has risen from the dead. So we look back and looking back at Jesus's resurrection causes us to look forward. We look forward now and anticipate if Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. And if you're not a believer, you need to respond to that reality by repentance and faith. But if you are a believer, I want you to respond with gratitude and courage. Because your biggest problems have been taken care of. Marta and I always, we often say, there's, you know, there's hard in this life, right? There's hard in this life. But you know what's really hard? Enduring the wrath of God forever. That's hard. There's hard and there's hard. And Jesus Christ came and Jesus Christ died and Jesus Christ rose to deal with your biggest problems. And so if you're a believer, first of all, you should be thankful. You should, your life should be characterized by an inexpressible joy even as you get up in the morning and your body aches and you look in the mirror and you start to see those puffy things underneath your eyes and you see a picture and you think, oh, (laughs) people come and look at your wedding picture and they laugh because, oh, who, who is this guy? As you, you know, just sleeping eight hours is painful as you get older. Well, why, why, are you, why is your back sore? You can't even say, like, I played a football game. Well, why, is my, why is your back sore? I, I got out of bed. As you think about the reality of dying, and even if you're young, it's coming quicker than you think. As you think about the reality of dying, 
Don't, don't do what the world does. Don't try to ignore it. Don't, don't be the kind of person that has to make light of it. It's, it's awful death. It's awful. It's the result of, of man's rebellion against God. It's awful death. Don't make light of it. But, but you're a Christian, so don't be controlled by the fear of it either. Remember Jesus' resurrection and imagine yours. Imagine yours. In fact, go further and imagine you two billion years from now in your resurrected body. I always say, what matters to you two billion years from now, that should be what matters to you now. As you live in this resurrected body, indestructible, glorious, strong, perfect, spirit-driven. I have good news. That, that's not just a nice idea. That's reality. And you know, that's reality because of God's work through one person, through one person, Jesus, the death killer. Everybody else has gone up against that monster death and they've lost. There's only one man who went up against death and won. And that's our Savior, Jesus. Worship him. Let's pray. Father, what do we say again, but thank you. And we say, help. Help us. You've done so much for us through Jesus. Help us to believe it and to enjoy it and to live lives like we're going to live forever. Because we are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.